Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Alicia Galvez, a cultural and medical anthropologist and a professor of Latin American and Latino studies at Lehman College and of anthropology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She is the author of Eating NAFTA, Trade Food Policies and the Destruction of Mexico, which addresses the changing food policy systems and practices in Mexico and Mexican communities in the United States, including the ways they are impacted by trade and economic policy. I welcome Alicia Galvez to Savage Minds. I was really impressed by your book, Eating NAFTA, where you examine the impact of free trade policies on food production, traditional cultures, and the extremely vulnerable bodies of Mexicans on both sides of the border. Your work is ethnographic in approach, combining political economy, medicine, anthropology, cultural studies, geography, even medicine, as you examine foodie trends in popular culture. You make an effective case here against consumption hierarchies, wealth inequality, and the many neoliberal policies that have derailed deeper discussions about how market-based approaches to diet end up claiming human victims and cultures. You discuss in this book the precipitous rise of obesity and diabetes in Mexico, linking this to changes within the Mexican diet brought on by NAFTA. Could you elaborate for our listeners who might be unaware as to how deeply NAFTA penetrated the political and cultural scene between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and how the interconnections of cultural tradition and dietary habits are done over? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for your, for your introduction and for reading my work. I, and I appreciate it deeply. Um, I think that we, when we hear about NAFTA, um, especially in the United States, it's always in the frame of, of jobs, especially manufacturing, manufacturing jobs. And a lot of the um, ways that we think about it just have to do with um, how both, you know, on kind of both political extremes, I'm thinking of the political campaigns, the primary campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2015, um, both arrived in an anti-NAFTA stance um, with the same kind of critique that it that it costs U.S. jobs, um, but we rarely hear in the U.S. Um, a you know kind of more comprehensive analysis of what NAFTA meant and the total transformation that it signified um, for a lot of people's uh, lives and well-being, um, especially in Mexico. It had a much bigger impact in Mexico than in the other two trading partners. And even in Mexico, you know, the, the wealthy elites um, tend to praise it as, you know, kind of achieving what it set out to do, um, because for them, maybe it did, um, you know, foreign direct investment is up, you know, manufacturing is up. Um, there are many more billionaires today than there were 30 years ago. Um, but for the average person, it's been incredibly destructive. And it spelled, you know, kind of an immediate um you know, outflow from the countryside of migration of people um, who could no longer um, subsist on small scale farming. And um, some people who used to compete, you know, who used to be able to sell their avocados, for example, no longer could sell their avocados because of built in protections for Florida avocado growers, for example. Um, 
And, and all of this had, had cultural consequences as well, because small scale farming is the way um, that was the backbone of, of food provisioning and enabled um, Mexican people really until the mid nineties to continue to eat, you know, what is sometimes characterized as the milpa based diet, um, you know, corn, beans, squash, chiles, um, you know, really everything centering on, on corn, tortillas in particular. Um, if you don't have access to, to fresh ground corn, um, everything else changes. And so it really, um, you know, had a tremendous, that has dietary implications, health implications, cultural implications, economic implications, um, you know, changing ideas about kind of what constitutes Mexican national identity and, and its relationship to foodways. So, so many ripple effects, really. In your examination of how NAFTA affected food preparation, consumption in Mexico, could you elaborate for those listeners who are unaware how NAFTA shifted these traditions? What are some practical talking points here that you might point out that show direct impact from NAFTA in terms of Mexican eating habits? Well, when we think about that, that corn-based diet, um, it really relies on people having easy access to fresh corn, um, to fresh, you know, uh, it's dried <laughs> before it's used, before it's ground, but it's, um, its proximity to, to the countryside is, is very important. So um, when we look, for example, at the massive urbanization wave in the, in the middle of the 20th century to Mexico City, um, overnight, you know, the, the city boomed into, into close to the megalopolis that it is today. Um, uh, one of the reasons that people didn't starve was because they still had family members in the countryside who grew corn and could get corn to the capital. Um, and so we see, you know, small scale corn farming really sustaining people, both in terms of, you know, prevention of hunger, but also sustaining those, those cultural ties to the countryside and to rural ways of life. NAFTA we see was a much more violent transition because people rather abruptly lost access to land because of the way ways that the Mexican government changed um, land tenure access, which had previously been guaranteed. Um, communal land holding had been guaranteed under the constitution and it was really challenged prior to NAFTA. We see Mexico pull, pull corn support, um, corn subsidies, um, food distribution supports uh, away um, in anticipation of NAFTA, trying to kind of be more uh, liberal than, you know, than the U.S. Um, and Canada in terms of, you know, kind of proving its its credibility, its, its free trade um, credibility prior to the agreement. Um, and so we see many ways that, you know, people who used to, even if it was one thing among many that they would do in terms of their household subsistence strategy, um, corn farming was always present and we see it really slip away. Um, we see Mexico initially, you know, kind of um, nominally try to protect its small scale corn growers um, in acknowledgement of the centrality of corn growing, not only to Mexican e economies, food systems and identity, um, but, you know, really is something that, that would be politically 
unwise to, to kind of mess with small scale corn farming. We see an initial effort by the Mexican government to protect it. But then almost immediately we see, you know, um, workarounds being established where Mexico gets diagnosed with a so-called corn deficit um, that enables the, the staged um, tariffs and, and um, protections of, of Mexican corn farming to be superseded by uh, U.S. corn imports. And so we start seeing, you know, cheap industrial U.S. corn coming in um, sooner than it was supposed to. It was supposed to not, you know, kind of enter the economy into, until 2008, but we see it entering the economy in 95. Um, and what that means is qualitatively different for the Mexican consumer because uh, the industrial corn that's grown in the Midwestern United States is not intended for human consumption. It's great for animal feed. It's great for industrial applications for making corn starches, corn fillers, corn um, uh, syrups, um, ethanol. It's it's very good for those sorts of applications, but it's really not food in the traditional sense of the word. Um, and simultaneously, what we start to see is you know this kind of unfettered access of industrialized food and beverages to the Mexican market. And so NAFTA really favors um, the establishment of, you know, really robust distribution networks all across the Mexican countryside. So places that formerly were marginalized from the Mexican uh, national economy, um, to considered too far off the beaten path to merit, you know, kind of distribution channels get folded in, in ways that make it so you know, the Coca-Cola truck, you know, is, is an omnipresent um, site in, in very rural communities that previously had been ignored um, for better or for worse. And so, you know, cheap processed foods become more affordable and more accessible, more visible, more prevalent at the same time that traditional ancestral foods um, corn-based cuisine becomes more difficult to access. So people are not sort of suddenly say, you know, opting for different kinds of food. It's a, it's a transition in which, you know, some things come within reach and other things fall out of reach with grave health consequences and economic consequences and social consequences. That was my next stepping point. The distribution and marketing affects a certain outcome within Mexico that has affected the health of Mexicans now several decades later? Mm -hmm. We see uh, just a massive explosion of um, chronic disease uh, and in the last couple of decades, um, diabetes uh, is both more likely to be fatal in Mexico than it is in Canada and the United States, more likely to be diagnosed at a later date um, and more prevalent. So we see, um, between 70 and 80,000 deaths to diabetes per year um, by the turn of the century. And we see um, kidney disease. Uh, we see, you know, um, the Mexican government becoming obsessed with the so-called obesity epidemic. I have my critiques about the pathologization of obesity, um, but it's um, the frame in which Mexico uh, kind of understands the, the the change to the Mexican body um, after NAFTA. Um, and we see, you know, just this really stark um, 
transformation of the ways that people access food and what food is affordable. Um, and we know that industrialized foods and beverages are, you know, crafted to be as <laughs> appealing, you know, as sensorily appealing as possible, you know, the sweetness, the saltiness, you know, these are um, flavors that are, you know, concocted in, in labs um, to maximize their, their appeal. Um, we know that, you know, there's, um, you know, that when, when they're cheap and, and ubiquitous, ubiquitously available, and there are no, not other options available, um, that, you know, people consume them. And we see, you know, a marketing campaign, um, that really pushes, you know, processed foods as kind of emblematic of, you know, and wherever we live in the world, we'll probably recognize these, you know, marketing strategies of, you know, being fun, being convenient, being easy. Um, you know, there's uh, even a kind of feminist angle of, you know, working parents can, you know, use use processed foods to feed their families if they, um, you know, don't have time to prepare uh, a more laborious home-cooked meal. Um, and so we see, you know, really vast rises in, in consumption in these products. And um, at the same time that in, you know, the United States and Europe, we start to see, you know, a much more concerted um, zeroing in on processed foods and beverages, kind of a lot of people are expecting the so-called big tobacco moment to come for, for soda and processed foods, you know, when big tobacco spent decades um, denying that it knew that its products were harmful and suppressing evidence that its products were harmful. And then eventually had its reckoning when it was held accountable with, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar settlements. Um, a lot of people expected food and, you know, food and, and beverage companies to be held accountable in the same way. And what we see instead of a kind of mea culpa moment of of these industries saying, well, you know, maybe we should just kind of <laughs> fold it in and, and not marketing market these things anymore. They, they take two strategies. One is in, you know, the United States and, and Europe, I think we see, you know, kind of a proliferation of good for you as Pepsi calls it good for you versus fun for you product lines. So we see, you know, vitamin waters and sodas without you know, with artificial sweeteners. Um, and at the same time, they double down. Their second strategy is to double down in the rest of the world and market heavily, more heavily than ever to compensate for the loss of, of market share um, in other places. And so there's no acknowledgement, no mea culpa moment um, that, you know, we've seen yet where they you know, acknowledge the danger of their products, especially to, to children and their growing brains and bodies. Um, and instead they just, you know, go harder to try to sell more before, um, you know, the, the, the laws regulating consumption and taxation, um, as we saw, you know, in Mexico with its soda tax, you know, become more widespread. I lived in Mexico at two different points, one in the late 80s, one in the mid 90s. And it was interesting to me when people would say, let's go to the supermercado, the hipermercado. And I was floored by the introduction of fast food in the sense of chips. 
and Cheetos and thinking, I remember thinking, what on earth is this? Now, this was many years before. And as you well know that the all three North American countries, the US, Canada, and Mexico have some of the highest obesity and diabetes rates on the planet. And mm -hmm. I don't think the consumption of these foods and the rates of diabetes and obesity are coincidental at all. Indeed, no. we see from Galeanos Venas Abiertas de America Latina to the present day, how exploitation of capital has amassed one form of destruction or another. And where Galeanos work, we could say covers a large part of history, of the conquests. Mm -hmm. I would say that we could make a claim that capitalist exploitation is still continuing today, claiming lives under a different guise. Might capitalism be viewed as an extension of colonial conquest? After all, can Mexicans, especially urban Mexicans, opt out of the junk food now flooding their supermarkets? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with you. It's, um, it, it's the conclusion that we have to draw. Um, the, the evidence points in that direction. And I think, um, you know, we have to understand these things within frames, um, you know, established by, by Galeano, by Raul Prevesh, where we really see, you know, this um, very parasitic form of economic development that's premised on destruction. Um, and what we can see is that there's some particularly insidious forms of globalization, right? So there are some things that some people just say, well, that's globalization. That's, you know, that's the price we pay, right? So more, more people can get soda, big deal. More people can also get, you know, um, needed medications or access to the job market or access to credit. Um, and there's this sort of um, shoulder shrugging that these are kind of um, externalities to, to the mode of development that is ultimately beneficial. Um, there's a few things I'd, <laughs> I'd like to say about that. One is um, we have to see, you know, did NAFTA achieve what it was proposed to, to do. It was proposed to reduce poverty. It was proposed, uh, the, the, the goal was to expand the Mexican economy, to shift people into manufacturing roles. Um, the Mexican president who negotiated the deal said, you know, we will no longer um, export people, we will ex export goods. Um, all of these things have, not come true. Uh, Mexican poverty is the same today as it was in 1994, <laughs> even while many other countries in Latin America have seen double digit reductions in their poverty rates in the same time period without NAFTA deals. Um, we can see that um, there has been, there was an initial explosion of migration um, when the Mexican government initially anticipated that 50,000 campesinos would be um, displaced from their land, um, the number was actually um, about one in 10 Mexicans um, in, the mid, in, in the 90s migrated to the United States. Um, people did not find new places in the economy uh, in the countryside. They did not find new places in the economy anywhere in their country um, and found their way to the United States. And because NAFTA was um, a very poorly conceptualized deal. Um, if it had been, you know, a, a deal like the European Union of, you know, uni a regional unification of economies, then it would have allowed for the provision of human mobility. 
Um, but there was only mobility of capital and goods um, conceptualized. The U.S. government refused to even even discuss uh, human mobility as, as a component of the deal. So we see massive undocumented migration because people didn't had to assume the, the burden of, um, of unauthorized migration on their own shoulders. And so, you know, we just see this tremendous disruption um, in, the, in, in Mexico and in the region um, so NAFTA, on the one hand, did not, you know, the, the capitalist promise that was made was not fulfilled. Um, on the contrary, you know, incredible destruction was wrought. And then the other thing that I think, and this is something that, um, you know, sometimes people push back uh, on with me, but I, but I actually think it's important to, to continue to think about. Um, I think this is in many ways an innovation of, of capitalism. So we see the expansion of markets, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, in terms of places that were always excluded from the national economy, um, now being part of distribution networks. Um, but I think that we see with NAFTA a new role um, for the Mexican citizen. Um, whereas, you know, when we think about, um, you know, kind of Fordist capitalism, the role of um, the worker is in manufacturing is, is to dedicate their labor. We see with globalization, there's you know, a deterritorialization of that process, but labor, labor is still central. Um, but what I see happening in the last couple of decades is really a role that pushes labor um, to the margins of, of the equation. There's less centrality of the role of, of the worker in their in terms of their labor contributions. And instead, the average Mexican citizen's contribution is consumption. So we see value being generated by people who are never being incorporated into labor markets. Um, there's a vast number of people in Mexico who are referred to colloquially as the ni nis, ni estudiando ni trabajando, neither studying nor, nor working. Um, there's, in spite of, you know, expansion in some areas where some people are getting more manufacturing jobs, there's a, you know, massive increase in the automotive industry, aeronautics, a lot of people are not getting jobs and are not getting um, educational opportunities that would enable them to support um, themselves or their families. And so we see at the same time, this very vast expansion of, um, of expectations that people will consume, even if they are not um, participating in the economy as workers. And so we see, um, for example, people um, being enabled to consume uh, through, you know, for example, the anti-poverty benefits that are, that are um, innovated in the late 90s and to the present um, give cash benefits to people who have low incomes. And encourage them to, um, initially it's, you know, kind of in the form of, of pantry baskets where people are given foodstuffs, but it, we start to see this transition where people are given cash first. So, you know, direct cash transfers to low-income families. And today we're start to, starting to see that it's more about market inclusion in the form of credit. So people are encouraged to participate in, uh, in the credit economy, even if they are not 
employed. And so we start to see that people are enabled to consume um, even when they don't have an income, even when there is no place in in the economy for them. And that consumption is so important to the economy that it becomes as, you know, um, I think, uh, I think it's Lauren Berlant who describes, you know, kind of a, 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 a binging sort of economic contribution in which people are expected to consume even when it stretches their human capacity physically, right? So we can imagine obesity as kind of a way to store, and Julie Gutman writes about this as well, to store, you know, kind of the excesses that the market produces. So in the United States, we grow too much corn. We don't know what to do with it. We dump it or we convert it into corn syrups and corn sugars. And our corporations distribute it, um, you know, throughout the world and people can access these things. They can consume them. And if they overconsume, very conveniently, they can be blamed for inadequate personal discipline um, as, you know, a failure of, of their own behavior. Um, and if they have, you know, chronic disease that results, um, then they consume in a different way. They consume glucose testing, you know, strips, they consume, um, compression hosiery, they consume insulin. And we see, you know, all of these other industries that step into that new market space. Um, so I think, you know, this is a really disturbing turn actually, in terms of, you know, how we can understand global economic forces. Well, I've witnessed it myself while I was living in London, I met on a bus two engineers who were working on restructuring all the NHS hospitals due to the increase in obesity, putting pressure on the floors of very old hospitals. I'm talking center of London, 400 year old buildings, if not much more. And I was thinking, we were talking about this because they said it's gone far beyond just them being called in to restructure. Uh, new x-ray machines, new MRI machines, you name it, there has to be now two sizes. And it's interesting, this analysis you've just given in the way that creating a sick population feeds the, the, the fires of capitalism, because capitalism likes bodies. They can be sick and dying bodies, but it makes money nonetheless from them. And I think that's really disturbing because when we, even if we consider how, how so for example, how does Mexico as, as a nation diagnose, you know, how does it come up with its national strategy against obesity and diabetes, there are calculations that economists use to not only calculate mortality, um, but to calculate um, productivity loss to disability, right? So if people are sick enough that they miss days of work um, or their life is shortened, then there's an economic formula that can calculate the costs to the nation, both for healthcare as well as just lost productivity, right? If we think about that, and then we think about people who are never being incorporated into the economy and are generating value anyway, um, we can see these very perverse sorts of situations. And, you know, I hate to say it, but look at what's happening now with the pandemic, where we know we can see with our own eyes um, in the UK, in the United States and Mexico, we see disproportionate mortality. Um, and yet we see in the United States and Mexico, at least we see this booming stock market, you know, where the economy seems un, 
impacted in that measure, at least. We know that people are, you know, losing jobs, losing their homes, um, the looming eviction crisis. Um, and yet somehow the stock market seems unaffected. And so there seems to have been, you know, historically, at least when we think about, you know, and if you go back, um, as I think you've done in, in, in some of your work, um, I think, you know, if we go back to thinking about what Galliano wrote about in terms of, you know, the, the, the mining, the United Fruit Company, um, if we think about that model of capitalism where a corporation would, um, you know, create kind of a total universe, a company town in which, you know, workers would be incredibly exploited, but there would be a minimum investment on the part of the corporation into keeping workers alive and able to work, right? So <laughs> healthcare services, housing, food, you know, everything had to be adequate enough <laughs> that people people's ability to work would not be impacted. Um, and if we, you know, have an economic model where people can be sick and dying and still generating profit, we're in trouble. We're seeing this everywhere now with all the discussions around COVID, the elision of class politics entirely, which blows my mind because it's happening in the States, it's happening all over the so-called developed West. I find it quite underdeveloped in that sense. You've had very few countries stepping in to protect renters, the most vulnerable people. So what you just stated about the stock market made me think, well, they've just disappeared all the lumpen proletariat, haven't they? Mm -hmm. If you can have a market be healthy that is existing with a huge sector of the population that doesn't know how it's going to pay rent and possibly eat tomorrow, we have a problem. <laughs> we absolutely do. So I'm thinking about the way that NAFTA, and I know this wasn't the focus of your book at all, but in 94, there were a lot of fast food joints around the States and in Canada. Mm -hmm. That was always part of the American panorama since the Second World War as they slowly built up. But I was wondering, as I was reading your work, how perhaps NAFTA has affected similar paradigms in Canada and Mexico in the sense of since the 1990s, obesity also in these countries has increased and so have other diseases that are caused by the ultra consumption of these kinds of processed foods. One thing I really loved about living there was the way in which people had their communities and on Sundays you'd walk over to this neighbor's house and buy some tamales. She was the one that made them best and your family likes her tamales. And she would open up a bucket that you would use to wash the floor, but it was not a bucket to wash the floor. It was a bucket full of tamales. And she lifted the tea towel and picked out the number requested and covered it back up. And these kinds of traditions, even within barrios and friendship groups and family groups, and I, I can't help but think that this kind of cultural communication is also shifting because food is such a part of the way we communicate, especially in Mexico. I mean, I lived in Puebla. Need I say, it's like the mecca of food. I mean, I know there's arguments there all around because we can argue about other regions of the country. But for me, that was like heaven. You just... You're, you're hungry and you get, you know, like most Americans have no idea what a real taco is. Exactly. One of my roadside tacos was a taco with chiles relleno inside of it. And I'm like eating this. And I'm, I'd only had chiles relleno on a plate with a fork and a knife. 
And I was like, oh my God. And I went there every weekend. <laughs> I looked for him. Like, no, no, no. He's got the bandana and it has to be him. Like I became a bit fixated on his <laughs> food. So one sees this in Mexico City everywhere. There's, you know, carne uh, being grilled here and there with cheese on top. I'm going to get hungry talking about <laughs> this. So I'm wondering how this has affected the cultural relations, uh, both in Mexico, but also outside, because I know we're talking a bit about your work in New York, but have you noticed this just even in passing? Absolutely. I mean, I think, one, I, I agree with you. If you are going to limit yourself to one place, Puebla is probably a, a, you know, an ideal place to, to eat forever and ever. Um, it's, it's so delicious and there's such a variety and it has such an interesting um, cultural amalgamation, um, both in terms of pre-Columbian and European influences, but also in terms of Lebanese migration. And there's just so many cross currents that make Puebla, Poblano cuisine just so incredibly rich and, and diverse and interesting and delicious. Um, I think, you know, there are, there are aspects to, you know, and, and Mexican cuisine is, is so diverse. Um, there really is no such thing. It's kind of a misnomer. Um, there's no such thing as Mexican food because every, every, you know, region, but even every town, every household practically has its own interpretation of ingredients and styles of, of cooking. Um, and it's complex. And when it's done you know, in, in traditional ways, it takes a, a tremendous amount of time. Um, you know, there's uh, a book um, written by Sokolov about colonial Latin America that estimates that the average colonial household in Mexico um, required 40 hours per week just and labor just to produce the tortillas for the household. So we know that a lot of that labor falls on women, especially indigenous women. And so you know, there are reasons why, um, you know, that kind of laborious uh, traditional form of food preparation um, is incompatible with, you know, some aspects of contemporary life, um, you know, in some ways for good feminist reasons, it's hard to work outside of the home or get an education if one is, you know, kind of expected to do that kind of labor. Um, and a lot of the Patravera locality of, you know, women um, joining their their partner, their their male partner's household, and you know, being recruited as you know, they're part of their mother-in-law's um, domestic labor team, um, you know, contributes to all kinds of oppression and exploitation um, that really truncated women's. Um, you know, opportunities for, for self-fulfillment and autonomy. So there are lots of reasons why, um, you know, the, the promotion of, you know, fast and convenient foods, um, you know, is seen by some, many people as something that, it, that is liberating. What we have to see is how people are, uh, what, you know, can people continue to, to eat that way, to live that way if they choose to, um, and what's, re, you know, what's kind of on offer to replace it. And so we, on the one hand, we still see a societal expectation that, that moms will, you know, be in charge of, of their children's health and well-being and diet, um, and their fam, ex, their extended families as well. And so, 
um, is as part of its anti-diabetes campaign, the Mexican federal government eliminated kiosks, you know, the fast food kiosks that would sell candy and, and soda and chips right outside of schools. Um, so those were eliminated, um, which is a good idea, right? Eliminate the easy access to those products and you hope that, you know, children will have access to something healthier. Um, but they don't have in school hot meals. Um, most, only a small percentage of Mexican public schools feed children. Um, the school day ends, you know, in time to get home for lunch. And so um, a lot of, you know, there's still an expectation often of someone. And I was told by the vice minister of health, if it's not mom, it's another woman. Um, that's a quote, <laughs> um, <laughs> would be home to, uh, prepare a hot meal for children. And so who's supposed to do that labor. And then when we consider, um, you know, just the incredible shift in, you know, kind of where jobs are and where people live, we see that people are no longer able often to live in extended family compounds, which make that kind of, um, way of eating, you know, possible. And so, we see that, you know, people have, Mexico is one of the countries with the highest um, percentage of its population who has a super commute, which I think is an excess of three hours per day traveling. Um, and so, and a lot of people have to relocate entirely, um, if not migrate. And so we see this kind of dispersal of, of the family unit. And so that really makes it difficult for people to continue to um, eat and, in you know, these complicated ways. Now the woman in the neighborhood who sells tamales, you know, from, from her kitchen is a wonderful, you know, substitute. Not everyone needs to make tamales if you have a neighbor who makes the best tamales ever. Um, and so, you know, that kind of thing um, fills in the gap in a lot of ways. And, and, and I think that that continues to be very important to a lot of people. Um, but can that person make a living off of doing that? And, um, you know, are the relationships of trust, you know, do they still know their neighbors because so many people have had to, you know, leave and relocate and, and, you know, their families have been splintered by, by economic ex exigencies. And then the other thing is that there's been, you know, there's a, there's a classist and racist, um, characterization of street foods as being unhealthy. So at the same time that Mexico is kind of, you know, marshalling this grand campaign to address um, diet related disease, we see this sort of framing of anything that's consumed in the street as being um, noxious to health, which is utterly untrue because there's nothing inherently unhealthy about the location in which one consumes food. Um, but we see this sort of, you know, painting with a broad brush, all, you know, all kinds of street foods as, as somehow contributing to the obesity and diabetes problem. And so, you know, I think that all of these, um, factors intertwined are, are really, um, threatening, um, you know, that kind of fabric of food provision that, that you remember so well. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show.
One thing I really like about Mexican food is the deep history of its entanglements with other cultures, such as the tortilla arabe, which is basically a flour tortilla. And I remember when you'd order food, sometimes they wouldn't ask and you just get the default corn tortilla. But other times it, there was that question. And I became very curious about this flour-based tortilla, which has origins to the Lebanese community and the taco uh, pastor. So I, I think it's quite fascinating that on the one hand, you have the cultural violence that NAFTA brought to the Mexican people and bodies and culture. And on the other hand, throughout history, Mexican food has always been, as you said, it's very regional. There are so many things that you can't find outside of Puebla and vice versa. You can't find outside of Oaxaca, for instance. But there's certain things about the food that I really love in terms of it being always available, such as Jamaica. I remember the first time someone asked me if I wanted Jamaica, and I'm like, I was thinking of the country, Jamaica. And so these are hibiscus leaves that they stew in water and sweeten or not. And this is such a lovely drink. And to think of this being replaced by Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola to me is sacrilege. Are Mexicans who are not wealthy, because as you and I both know, Mexicans who are wealthy, even, even living in El Defe, will have access to lands outside where they have their farm and they can grab their fruit. Are Mexicans replacing some of the toxic food being imposed upon them with other alternatives or are the alternatives not there? There has been very little um, effort to really, you know, promote uh, Jamaica or Limonada con Chia, or there's thousands of varieties of, of Mexican beverages <laughs> that are really wonderful. Um, every one of which is better than a, than a Coca-Cola. Um, and, you know, there's been very little effort to promote these as health resources. You know, um, if you live in the United States, and I don't know if it's the same in the UK and in other places, um, you know, you almost can't go to the supermarket or turn on the television without seeing, you know, a magazine with recipes for tacos, um, you know, a, a food documentary on Netflix about tacos in Mexico City, you know, and a, a, a travel channel program about, you know, taking a taco tour in Mexico City. Um, you know, this kind of cuisine is being promoted as a tourism resource. Um, the Mexican, you know, Ministry of Tourism has these beautiful high resolution, you know, brochures that they distribute at the airport and everywhere else that kind of encourage you to partake of the gastrono gastronomic diversity of Mexico. But when we look at the health and the education campaigns associated with the diabetes epidemic, we don't see um, a promotion of drink Jamaica instead of Coca-Cola. Um, we don't see any sort of structural effort to make water cheaper than soda, which is a problem, believe it or not. Um, a majority of public schools don't have potable drinking water. And so there's just really not and, and this has to do with longstanding, um, you know, strands of, of racism and classism and anti-indigeneity specifically that, you know, don't frame, that frame, you know, indigenous foodways as inadequate. And so we don't really see 
that kind of promotion. And increasingly, we are starting to see it, you know, kind of being subject to this speculative, um, you know, effort by foreign chefs and by a few Mexican nationals who, you know, kind of are marketing to a very elite global foodie crowd, you know, the kind of culinary diversity of Mexico. Um, But we don't see it being, you know, that campaign being made to the Mexican people. And so people tend to, you know, kind of sheepishly, you know, say, well, I, you know, if you say, what's your, you know, health strategy or, or what's your favorite food? People say, well, you know, I have a, I have a weakness for vitamina T, vitamin T, right? Tacos, tamales, tequila, <laughs> um, you know, tostadas, <laughs> there, I could go on and on and on, black bollos. Um, you know, there's so many delicious things that <laughs> start with tea um, that are, you know, that people are embarrassed to, to admit that they like. And there's, just not an, a counter-marketing effort to say, you know what, at the Coyo is a million times better for your health and well-being <laughs> than, you know, a bag of Doritos. Um, and it's just really, really tragic that that kind of messaging has not happened in a concerted way. It's very rarely happening. We see it, you know, I can see in here in the United States, there's uh, a, a Mexican serving organization that I, that I collaborate with that had a nutrition education campaign that was trying precisely to help promote um, indigenous foodways. And so it was entitled um, Comiendo Sanos Como Mexicanos, Eating Healthy Like Mexicans, um, which rhymes nicely in the Spanish version. Um, But these are very rare efforts. And for the most part, you know, it's really not the messaging that's happening. Well, I noticed when I was in Puebla that at one point, someone explained to me, they said, look around the room. I was in a bar. And, and she said to me, if you notice the people with the red packages of Marlboros are signaling their wealth because it costs much more than the local <laughs> packaged cigarettes and even the off-brand cigarettes. And I was thinking a lot about that in reading your book because I kept thinking about how cultural hegemony takes place even before the consumption. It's in the marketing, it's in the packaging, it's in the presentation and what that means to the local population Mm -hmm. that like you just mentioned, wants to perhaps distance itself from more of the traditional foods that happen to be healthier. And then I'm thinking back to the way in which Americans given similar choices, and we see this all the time in the news, uh, used to be the right-wing media, how people living in disenfranchised areas, for instance, I lived in Brooklyn, right on the other side of Prospect Park from Park Slope. And that community at the time in the 90s was not yet gentrified, we'll call it that, what a horrible word, but that's the term. (laughs) And it was interesting to me to see at that metro supermarket that had rotting platanos, uh, bananas, uh, fruit of all sorts and vegetables. It was horrible. I had to actually bring my groceries in from the village when I, when I was teaching at NYU. And I come back home with a load of groceries because the local supermarket serving a, a largely non-white population base had food that was superior in price and much inferior in quality. And I 
can't help but think about all this together in the way that foreigners go to Mexico and they're impressed that people drink micheladas, spicy beer. And at the same time, the protections of the markets that NAFTA brought in and NAFTA's follow-up has brought forth such that people will grow up completely isolated from their own culture mm -hmm. in the sense that they may very well not know what some of their cultural traditions are because the onslaught of publicity and pushing of very unhealthy food will take first seat. And as you noted, people are working longer hours, more jobs. Many people, even on the left, don't have enough time to do activism or to inform themselves mm -hmm. about the deficits of the systems that are being foisted quite literally upon them. So I was thinking, as you were talking about the Nini groups who are made de facto stand-ins for capitalism, and the fact that when I was living in Mexico in 94, the statistics of Mexicans who had relatives living in the U.S. and Canada were extremely high. So even though NAFTA had just kicked in then, even before that, they were already getting on that conveyor belt of information of what's good in the U.S. Because as you know, in Mexico, and this happens all over the world, by the way, but people see you come from New York and they're like, oh, que lindo, que padre. And then you're like, yeah, but I could be a serial killer. But the faith, the good faith, I found Mexicans to be incredibly trusting and friendly, overwhelmingly, towards a foreigner where the situation reversed is not at all the same. And you can speak very bad Spanish and have people treat you incredibly well in Mexico. And again, the inverse in the US and Canada is not at all the same. So I'm wondering if part of this hegemonic market consumption of Western goods, largely, is at all linked to the health situation, in part because of the change in diets. For instance, diabetes is also extremely high in India, in Morocco, where I've also done research. And these same statistics weigh in that direction because of the ways in which the upper middle class has grasped onto this. And it's the middle and lower middle classes and the poor who have no choice because they're not sitting at parliamentary benches. They're not in power in any way. They don't hold CEO chairs of major corporations. And the way that they can inflect change is almost zero because of the lack of power to have a say. Meanwhile, Again, my family in India, they're not poor, and they have suffered the physical ramifications of eating a more Western-style diet. White flour, the tortilla arabe, and the sense that that consumption isn't necessarily overtaking the consumption of the tortilla de maíz. So what can you say in terms of how this kind of cultural hegemony that shifts from let's say TV ads at one point now, internet ads, word of mouth, the fact that your cousin lives in Los Angeles and he brings back every time he comes to visit you this treat. And the way that these non-Mexican treats are always going to be better because of the way Mexicans, I'm gonna to refer to Otavio Paz here for a moment, but he does talk about the way that Mexicans have this, mm, he doesn't say love-hate relationship with themselves. And I'm thinking on that chapter he writes about the hijo de la chingada and his 
tirade against La Malinche. And I'm thinking about maybe that same kind of odio, that same kind of self-loathing because of somehow missing out on capitalism. Well, there's, yeah. So there's, um, I mean, one thing to think about is that globally, Corinna Hawkes, who's based in the UK, you know, has found that basically wherever you go, um, you know, the more uh, kind of global trade there is, the, the worse the health outcomes. <laughs> um, globalization is associated with chronic disease over and over again. And we see this, you know, widespread epi epidemic around the world. And um, so it's not unique to Mexico for sure. Um, but I think, you know, it happens in unique ways in each place. And so, in Mexico, there's this sort of pervert, and sorry, in one aspect of that globalization, you know, when we talk about immigrant health, um, one of the things we talk about is dietary assimilation. And this was kind of the way I backed myself into doing research on trade policies in Mexico was really um, after, you know, a couple of decades of, of doing research with Mexican migrant communities in the New York area. And, you know, we, one of the themes that we always have looked at is dietary assimilation, you know, thinking about the ways that migrating to the United States, um, you know, is, is not good for people's health and, um, constitutes, you know, a, uh, you know, a negative shift in terms of people's food ways. Um, with negative health consequences. And now we are seeing globally, you know, dietary assimilation happening without migration. So people never leaving, in some cases, the rural communities from which they have, you know, their families have originated, and yet they have the, you know, the, the, their timeline, their, their, you know, dietary life history looks like dietary assimilation without ever having migrated. Um, so that's, you know, strange and, and surprising and, and worrisome. Um, the other thing is, you know, in Mexico, that it's a perverse kind of confluence of very long-standing racist ideas about the countryside and about indigenous people in particular, who have always been seen as ill-suited to modernity um, and a drag on, on progress and on, on the economy, which is terribly ironic because they're the only ones who have sustained the economy consistently um, since before the, the colonial period. And, um, you know, but there are these very particular frames that get revived in the NAFTA era. So, you know, sort of this notion that, um, you know, as we see kind of the, as, um, as um, Gutman and Carney write about, you know, kind of bio, bio-citizenship, you know, kind of the thin svelte, you know, body type associated with, um, you know, kind of white, wealthy, powerful people um, in the United States, we see that happening in Mexico too. So, thin, you know, models are, are tall, thin, and white, and, you know, having a rounder body silhouette is associated with indigeneity. Um, it's very ironic because, of course, until the last few decades, we see high rates of malnutrition. And so we see what's, you know, referred to by nutritionists as the double burden of malnutrition and um, excess of calories happening in a lot of rural communities in Mexico where poverty is still accompanied, um, you know, insufficient uh, access to nutrition is now accompanied with, you know, a surfeit of access to poor, poor nutritional sources. So um, the processed foods and sweets and sodas. 
um, which are now more affordable than a lot of traditional foods. And people um, who, who experience negative health consequences are seen as kind of being, depending on how racist the, the commentator is, um, either, you know, kind of inherently incapable of navigating, um, you know, the, the food landscape, you know, kind of incapable of making wise decisions um, or the, having the self-discipline to consume in moderation, um, you know, and it's seen as either inherent or, you know, by the particularly racist people or by more liberal progressive folks, it's seen as a lack of nutrition education. Um, and so either way, there's this sort of blaming of, you know, people who are tend to be more brown and more round than the elite powerful members of, of society for being incapable of dealing with this changed food landscape. And that's a very convenient alibi that overlooks, you know, the way that the ground under people's feet has shifted. And it's, it's really incredibly, you know, disturbing to me how even progressive people, you know, will subscribe to this kind of cluck cluck, you know, um, pity towards, you know, the incapacity of, of people who, who need better, you know, decision-making power or better nutrition education to know how to navigate this changed landscape without taking any sort of responsibility for the decisions that the powerful have made to rework the landscape, to rework the food system, to rework the economy and the ways that people are expected to, to insert themselves in it. And um, it's just really disturbing and it's very convenient for the food and beverage industry, which are like, oh yeah, we support <laughs> nutrition education and exercise. That's what we think everyone should be doing instead of you know, taxing our products. When I lived in Nicaragua, the Sandinista government at the time had instituted educational forums within all communities to teach people about how to eat even vegetarian lifestyles. So they knew how to mix mm -hmm certain types of lentils or beans with rice or bread, etc. And I found that really impressive. And of course, that was Sandinismo. Here we are. Uh, but it still speaks to the power of government to have the ability to do this. And clearly, the Mexican government has not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting comment, because, you know, one of the things I use in my teaching, I one of the most radical documents I've seen in the last two decades, is the Brazilian nutritional guidelines um, under Gilma Rousseff, um, who, uh, whose administration, you know, came up with these really radical, I think Carlos Montero is the author, uh, radical dietary guidelines that basically say, you know, you should eat what's culturally significant, you should eat with people you love. Um, there's no mention of portion size. Um, there's no mention of calorie counting. It's all about, um, you know, eating foods that are culturally significant and avoiding processed foods. Um, and, you know, it's, it just in contrast, you know, reveals how incredibly beholden to, to, to the food corporations, um, you know, the US FDA is um, the Mexican nutritional guidelines, you know, they're just really documents written, um, you know, to, to cater to um, economic interests and the, and the food industry rather than, 
health and well-being. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it makes perfect sense that the Sandinistas would have, you know, that kind of approach. And I think, you know, we can see it in, in you know, in truly radical spaces, but um, in a lot of places, you know, what's considered radical has, has really been, um, you know, dulled um, and softened by pressures from, you know, economic interests. I'm going to shift over to your paper you published last year called Pacateros and Pacateras, Humanizing a Dehumanized Food System, where you look at the Pacateros who are informal couriers specializing in delivering goods between family members, often divided by borders, a labor which is positioned smack in between the formal and informal sectors of transport of goods and food provision. You describe in your book, in this essay, some of the foods that are transported. I'm just going to read it. It's beautiful. Dried chiles, bread, especially festive breads like pan de nuez, a walnut bread associated with Christmas holidays in its region, conserves of fruit, pumpkin seeds, dried hibiscus, Jamaica flowers, wood ash for nixtalamizing corn, dried herbs, spices, dried and ground corn, sweets typical to the region and home remedies. You list many within that. I didn't read the entire list, but when I read the list, I kept thinking, wow, I had a cut a few years ago and I didn't want a scar. And I wanted to get that special balm from Mexico that treats the scar. Now I've forgotten the name of it. It's Tepescoite. Having knowledge of how Mexicans eat and how they even use herbs for medicinal purposes, especially. Your essay looks at the importance of informal food couriers in a community dependent upon factors such as the recentness of migration, mobility, and the extensiveness of formal purveyors of key ingredients of foods. Why is this trade of food so important for Mexican immigrants living in cities like New York? I really loved writing this this paper because I think paqueteros are, you know, one of those um, kind of unsung heroes that really knit together communities and enable a certain kind of sociality and care um, that's just so important. And um, it is a very particular practice um, because paqueteros tend to be the thing that sets paqueteros apart from their clients is that they have mobility. So they're able to move back and forth across borders. Um, either they're dual citizens or they have um, long-term visas. There's some thing that they have that enables them to move. Whereas the majority of Mexican migrants in the New York City area came well after the last um, amnesty that, that we had in, in the 80s and have had no opportunity to regularize their status. And so the vast majority of, of first-generation migrants have been unable to, to regularize their status and therefore unable to move back and forth between Mexico and the US. Um, and yet have that desire for, you know, the cream that helps you with the burns or <laughs> my mother's um, mole or my father's, um, you know, herbs for, for a, a bad stomach or my neighbor's pan de nuez or whatever it is that people are interested in and in eating and, and having um, 
in New York. And so, and, and it's not exclusive to New York, wherever you see recently arrived migrant communities, you see this in places like Los Angeles, which is where I spent most of my, my um, childhood, you don't see as much of this because there is a vast Mexican, you know, um, economy uh, that provides all of the goods that someone might want. There's less of a need to, to bring goods that are ubiquitously available. And there's a lot, you know, there's a smaller proportion of first-generation migrants um, relative to, to people who were born in the United States um, or whose parents were born in the United States, second, third to nth generation. So in New York City, we have still over 50% um, of the, the Mexican population was born in Mexico and doesn't have mobility. And so Paqueteros you know, really knit together that community with their families of origin. And in very small quantities, you know, packages of five pounds or 10 pounds, they carry these goods. Um, you know, some of them travel every week, maybe even twice a week um, by plane. Some travel over land um, and transport vehicles, um, electronic goods, um, consumer goods from north to south. And then from south to north, they bring mostly nostalgia foods, herbs, medicinal um, products, um, and artisans, uh, artesania, um, handcrafts. And so I think it's just a really beautiful um, practice. And I think it really is one of those things that kind of shows us the gaps in NAFTA, because NAFTA doesn't, you know, really have a space for you know, a small scale mole producer to participate in the NAFTA economy or, you know, a grower of, you know, a specific kind of Chile that only grows in sun, you know, in, in a very particular community in the state of Puebla, um, you know, they don't participate in NAFTA in the same way. And so it shows us how NAFTA really caters to the larger corporations. And, and there's so much that's left out. You know, if you go to the quote unquote, ethnic foods aisle in the average US supermarket, all you'll see is Goya products, you know, or maybe mission products. Um, you know, you'll see the same tortillas, beans. Um, and there really isn't the kind of specificity that enables people to, to make food that they recognize um, from their communities. And so paqueteros really fill that gap. And what is the current situation in the community that you looked at in terms of their having access to these foods? Um, Paqueteros operated a pretty thin margin. Um, it's kind of remarkable to me that it's not more expensive. Um, they tend to, I think it's around $5 per kilo um, for as their fee. And they will typically um, transport, I think it's, I'm going to move back and forth between pounds and kilos as they do, but I think it's, um, seven, I think you can bring 70 pounds. Um, let's see, three suitcases, 70 pounds each without paying excess baggage fees, um, on Idol Mexico. And so the paqueteros that operate by plane, you know, will bring 210 pounds worth of goods. Um, and, so, you know, in their ticket, if they're frequent flyers, you know, will be a few hundred dollars. Um, so they operate at pretty, pretty thin margins and at a fair amount of risk. Um, increasingly, paqueteros have been um, 
And one of the reason that, reasons I wrote the article is to really um, normalize their, their, you know, their review, not that I'm normalizing, but reveal how, you know, kind of wholesome and wonderful this practice is because they've recently been increasingly um, subjected to extortion and exploitation by cartels who will force them into smuggling um, illicit items and also um, subject to criminalization by U.S. border authorities and customs authorities who tend to look down their nose at paqueteros generally. Um, they tend not to, you know, for class, classist and racist reasons, tend not to be very kind or respectful to um, paqueteros who tend to, you know, push the limits on baggage weight. Um, they don't have matching Louis Vuitton suitcases, but they have bulging duffel bags um, filled with mysterious, you know, powders like the ash or the um, spices that they might be carrying. And so they're subjected to an incredible amount of scrutiny. And, um, you know, so they, they incur a lot of personal risk. Um, and, you know, I've, there's at least one case that I know of where a woman, you know, an elderly woman was, um, had, you know, someone tamper with her bag. And so she was um, found to have heroin in her, in her suitcase when she arrived at JFK. Um, and the case was eventually dropped because of an error on the, on the government agent's part. But, um, you know, this is increasingly becoming too risky for a lot of paqueteros, but it's still a, a really powerful um, practice. It's interesting, after I lived in Bolivia and was very aware of the US presence there and trying to control the production of coca, which is used largely for cultural purposes, medicinal purposes, and the mate de coca, how the producers of coca are being paid to convert their crops to something else. Now, recently, I wanted to get chiles poblanos, which I cannot get anywhere. Very hard to get chiles poblanos. So I do wonder, what the future is for the farmers in Mexico who are growing those chiles I so desperately want <laughs> mm -hmm. and that people in Mexico love and eat daily. You need a How... paquetero. <laughs> yeah, I need a paquetero. I need a paquetero. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure one of them would be very happy to corner the market, the UK market. <laughs> I do know a, taco, a taquero in, in the UK. I think he moved back to Mexico, but he had the biggest uh, string of taquerias uh, in London. Oh, well, they're much needed uh, at this <laughs> point. But in the context of the US-Mexico food policy after NAFTA, now renamed the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, along with the increasingly globalized food system that is taking a toll on the human-scaled food production, processing, distribution, and consumption in favor of industrialized corporatized food, how do you view the latest redraft of NAFTA in terms of the cultural heritage of food growing and consumption throughout Mexico, the US and Canada? Unfortunately, the USMCA really does nothing to improve the situation. Um, I don't think that was even on the radar, sadly, of the negotiators. Um, you know, as we know, Trump, you know, kind of came into office threatening to rip up NAFTA, saying that it was a bad deal and that he was going to get a good deal. Um, and so there was a moment where I, I personally was in the paradoxical position of, you know, having written a whole book criticizing NAFTA and then really 
dreading that he might get rid of it because um, that could be even more destructive to just, you know, rip it up. Um, however, you know, his Trump's angle and the U in general, I think the mainstream U.S. perspective is that NAFTA is, is um, poses a threat to U.S. workers. Um, I think that's you know, unfortunately, a really terrible, um, you know, kind of biased perspective that doesn't take into consideration that it's really the 99% in all three countries that have been disadvantaged. And if we had a little bit of solidarity um, with the 99% in Mexico, we might have a shot for a better deal. Um, but I think, you know, uh, cultural heritage is really not so much on the, on the radar. Um, and, you know, Mexican elites aren't talking about it either, you know, um, so they, it wasn't like that, that request was going to come from the Mexican side. Um, Lopez Obrador, who, you know, Trump was in a hurry to get the deal signed before Lopez Obrador came to power under the assumption that Lopez Obrador would be less willing to grant concessions to, to Trump's, um, you know, angle and, and requests. But I think, um, you know, Lopez Obrador does have, you know, he his platform is built around a much greater respect for the countryside and for rural people. Um, and, you know, an acknowledgement that we haven't seen since the presidency of Lázaro Cárdenas in the post-revolution era of the significant role that the countryside and rural people play in sustaining the Mexican economy and the need to invest in the countryside. That's almost unheard of. Um, he hasn't quite, you know, put his money where his mouth is. And, you know, obviously coronavirus has, uh, you know, inter interceded as well as the quote unquote migration crisis, um, you know, significant distractions to be sure. But um, he hasn't, you know, quite implemented the, the progressive programs that a lot of people anticipated and that he promised um, to better center rural producers. Um, so, you know, there really wasn't anything in the USMCA renegotiation that would um, protect small scale producers or cultural diversity, um, you know, culinary diversity. And there are, you know, there are some enhanced environmental protections and labor protections. The AFL-CIO, which opposed the original NAFTA, ended up supporting the USMCA. And we saw Nancy Pelosi, you know, kind of in some ways, I think it was a political performance of, you know, kind of pushing back against Trump until she got the concessions that she wanted as far as labor and environmental protections. But I am not optimistic because the original NAFTA agreement had labor and environmental protections that were routinely flouted. So I don't particularly see any, you know, vast um, increase in you know, enforcement of, of the labor and environmental protections that might ensure a more level playing field for, for workers. Um, and, you know, a lot of the new kind of provisions in NAFTA just make things better for corporations. So things like intellectual property agreements are really not about, you know, kind of, you know, can, can, you know, a small scale mole producer compete in this economy, but rather are about, um, you know, US corporations um, and, you know, for example, seed patents, um, things like that, which, you know, we could argue are just inherently unethical. Um, 
and then we see things like the enhanced capacity of corporations to sue federal go national governments for violations of trade agreements. So when Mexico tries to, um, for example, uh, you know, ban glyphosate and, um, you know, ban GMO corn, it can be sued and is being sued by the, by Monsanto, by Bayer, um, to, uh, you know, as violations of the NAFTA agreement um, in terms of its own regulation of its own practices. Uh, Mexico has, you know, in, in recently in, increased its, um, you know, kind of campaign against diabetes and obesity by putting front of package labeling, um, the stop sign symbols on the front of packages, as well as banning marketing to children. Oaxaca has a state level law that makes, um, makes it illegal to sell um, junk food to, to children. So junk food and soda are kind of in the same category as tobacco and alcohol that you have to be of, of age to, to purchase it. And those governments are being sued by the corporations that want to market these products. So I'm not particularly encouraged, unfortunately. Thank you.